you absolutely can't. Maybe you should pay this person some royalties. Absolutely no way. Well, Lady C, thank you so much for joining the Disruptive Entrepreneur Show. I'm very grateful to have you. For everyone watching or listening, I'm also known as Lady Colin Campbell, but I'll be addressing Lady C as Lady C. I want to thank you so much. I'm very excited to do this. And uh, I'm going to start with with, um, really just sort of trying to identify Lady C, how you identify yourself, because if people are to research you, you are someone of many talents, multiple author, TV personality, entrepreneur. We have socialite in there. There's lots of things you do. But how do you see yourself, Lady C, in terms of your profession and career and what you do? Well, in terms of my career, I see myself partly as a writer who's serious about what she does and who, you know, I want my books to stand the test of time. And they are standing the test of time because, for instance, my first Diana biographies taught in American colleges uh, because everything I said has stood the test of time. So to me, that's important. And otherwise, I'm whoring for glory. <laughs> love, love it. Um, would you, and I'm going to come back to your books because I've written 18 books and I know a lot of the people who tune into the Disruptive Entrepreneur either have or would love to write a book. So I'd love to get in the idea and the writing process. And that thing about books standing the test of time, one of my favorite books, Think and Grow Rich, nearly 100 years old. So I think we can get some gold from you there, Lady C. But would you class yourself also as an entrepreneur? Because some people, they seem to class you as that. No, I really wouldn't. I mean, if I have done anything to make money, it's really been because my back was against the wall. And I had to, for instance, you know, when I bought Castle Goring, I didn't realize it was going to be quite as expensive. <laughs> I knew I knew that it was going to be supposedly hefty, but I thought I had everything under control to get it in for maybe a quarter the price. And I didn't. I got it in for rather more than that. So then I had to be whoring for goring. And since then, that's what I do. You know, I make no bones about it. It's It's to make money for the castle. I mean, I wouldn't be doing any of the things that I do publicly except for goring. I never, ever did. I would, you know, if I had a book to promote, I would promote it and I would go and I'd very dryly give the interview and then I'd leave and go back home and say, ha, thank God that's over. But I've actually found out that you can really enjoy a lot of this stuff, which I'm sure you've discovered. A lot of it is really fun. And a lot of the people you meet are really interesting and fun. Amen to that. Now, I would argue, I'm going to challenge you here, Lady C, um, that your version of whoring is a disruptive entrepreneurship. Your back's against the wall. You need to hustle and make some money. You go out, make some money. You do what it takes to pay the bills. Is that not an entrepreneur? Well, I suppose it is. I suppose it is. But I don't think of myself in that way. But I suppose it is. And thanks for for including me in your number, because I know that you are a very great entrepreneur. Well, thank you. So um, you've done lots of TV shows, Lady C. Did you ever strategically plan to build 
what is a very strong personal brand. You know, you're known very well. And like we said at the start, you know, Lady C has its own brand. Like many people, you know, they can't shorten their name and it have an identity, but you're almost like a rapper. Lady C, the rapper, you have your own shortened name version. Did you plan celebrity and personal brand? No, I didn't. In fact, the Lady C bit came about inadvertently because uh, one of the producers, a very nice person, actually, at I'm a Celebrity, she said they wanted to call me Lady C. And I said, you absolutely can't. I said, it's just not done. She said, well, there are three Georges on the show. There's George Shelley, there's Georgie Porter, and there's you. She said, so we can't have three Georges on the show. It's going to confuse everybody. So she said, if you don't mind, it really will work best as Lady C. I said, oh, I think it's very crass and vulgar and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, it's sort of blah, blah, blah. And she said, no, 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 really, it's going to be good. And it's turned out she was right. Because, I mean, some people who don't know who Lady Colin Campbell is, they know who Lady C is. It's quite extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, maybe you should pay this person some royalties. Well, let's not go that far, darling. <laughs> <laughs> a, a simple thank you will suffice. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah. So quite a lot of people say that you're quite controversial. Do you think you're controversial? No, I don't. I think, I, I think you know, people like to say I'm controversial. Uh, but I don't think I am. I think I'm very measured. If you read what I've said in my books, it's always very measured and it's always very accurate and it always stands the test of time. But because maybe I'm the first, because I was the first to reveal that the problems in the Wales marriage, that Diana had an eating disorder, that she had a lover, that Prince Charles had a lover, blah, blah, blah. I was the very first. I know people think Andrew Morton was the first because they pushed that he was the first in the press, but I was the first. Uh, and I think that sort of set the ball a rolling that, you know, I'm controversial. I'm not controversial. I'm very measured. I suppose if you, though, if you are a bit of a maverick in that you're breaking new ground, people need to label you. So I don't really mind. I couldn't care less normally. Although when I did write my book on the Queen's marriage, I did think it was a little bit of a stretch for, I think it was the mirror to say that the contents were salacious when I went to great lengths to point out that they had a very happy marriage and that there was nothing salacious about it. But you, you know what... Uh, Certain organs of the press are like, you know, they, they, the truth is not going to stand in the way of a good story, nor will accuracy ruin what is basically and should be a measured comment. Thank you. So I know you've written books about Diana, like you said, uh, Meghan Markle, the Queen, etc. So let's go with maybe Diana at for, for first. What was your relationship with um, Diana and or your memory of Princess Diana? Well, I met her when she was 17, before she 
was involved with Prince Charles and she was completely unmemorable. And I wouldn't have even remembered having met her, except that my stepmother-in-law, who was the fabled Margaret Duchess of Argyll, uh, Claire Foy is now doing her in some some television thing. I think it's called a British scandal or something. Anyway, Margaret said to me, she said, you know, that's Rain's stepdaughter. Because Margaret and Rain Spencer's mother, Barbara Cartland, were very, very good and old friends. And that's why I remember her. Otherwise, I'd never have remembered her. Then she married Prince Charles. And because I was 12 years older than she was, I was already very well established in the world that she was entering. Because, you know, she was very young. I was 32 and she was 20. And so I used to run across her at things. And because she was that much younger, uh, you know, I was very nice to her, which I would have been in any event. I, I like being nice to people unless they deserve to be kicked in the teeth, in which case I'll put on my boots and give them a good wallop. And she was very sweet and all the rest. Of it. And so we'd see each other at things, but we weren't really friends. And then in 1989, there was a huge recession. And in those days, my main thing was raising money for charities, unpaid, by the way. Nowadays, people get a quarter of a million for what I and friends of mine did for nothing. But anyway, be that as it may. And... I came up with the idea of doing, because you could make money for the charities and the charities needed money. I mean, they were really on the floor. And I came up with the idea of doing a book focusing on Diana's life, but really focusing on her charity work. Very anodyne. I knew there were problems in the marriage, but I wasn't going to be addressing them. Uh, and that I would. Do, and I pitched the idea to her, three of my charities, which were three of her charities. She loved the idea. I went into the palace, which is the standard thing. What you do is you approach the royal behind the scenes, they green light it, then you go into the palace and it's sort of all made all very official. And so I went into the palace, I saw Dickie Arbiter, who I have to tell you, somebody I cannot abide. Diana used to call him a basking shark, and I can see why. He's really quite an odious little creature. The less said about him, the better. I went in and I saw him, and she pulled the plug on it, because she had decided that my book would be her get-out-of-jail card. She wanted a separation. She wanted out of the royal system. She hoped eventually to remarry. And she realized that my book would be her get out of jail card. And I have to tell you, I was very hesitant because in those days, the protocol was, if you say anything against the royal family or say anything that they do not approve of, you would be ostracized. And anyway, I thought about it, and she and I talked about it. And to cut a long story short, we proceeded. And then she started to tell so many porkies, because, but she made the big mistake of speaking the truth first. It's a very fatal mistake to me. 
if you're going to lie, lie from the very beginning. Don't change your story halfway, which is what she did. And on, at that point, I'm the one who pulled out. And I also realized she was then going to go to someone else. And I thought, wow, I mean, this I'm sitting on dynamite. And I also realized that if I didn't get my book out, she was going to destroy the Prince of Wales's reputation completely. And she was going to do it unfairly. If it had been fair, I'd have been the first one to plunge the knife in. But because it was untrue, I thought, no. And I wrote the truth. And I knew my book would stand the test of time. And sure enough, I was right. She went to Andrew Morton and got him to give her version of the truth, which I have to tell you, bore very little resemblance to the facts. Wow, what a story. I'd love to come in a moment, uh, Lady C, to a bit about your writing process and how you create ideas and how you make a book stand the test of time. Um, one thing before that is you've written about Meghan Markle, I believe. And by the way, if any of my research is wrong, feel free to um, correct me. We do try our best to do good research. I always like mm. to check first, though. Um, mm. So what do you think about Harry and Meghan distancing from the royal family and the, the famed Oprah um, interview. My wife and I watched that and her, her jaw just hit the floor when it all happened. What are your thoughts on this? She is gonorrheal and Regan rolled into one. She's gonorrheal. Remember King Lear? The two thankless daughters. She is treacherous, in my opinion. She is all about making money and, and our increasing her fame. She never had any intention. Oh, I, I should, she had no intention of sticking it. And I should qualify at this point by saying, a lot of the information that I received that made it possible for me to write Meghan and Harry, the rare story, came from various well-established people, let's put it that way, courtiers, royals, aristocrats. I mean, that's my world, and we're all friendly. And if I don't know you very well, I know your wife's brother very well. So everybody knows what's going on. And, and they started to express their concerns. This was while Meghan was ostensibly pregnant. And she had been to California and she had been trying to commercialize herself and she was trying to politicize herself. And there was great concern that she was getting into territory that would be damaging for the royal family because you're not, I mean, the Prince of Wales and the Queen, they have commercial wings to their operations, but they are, everything is very carefully controlled. Meghan wanted to do exactly what Meghan has spun around and done. And, and they were absolutely horrified and they found her uncontrollable. And whenever they said, well, you can't do this, she'd create a scene, Harry would back her up. And there was also real worry that Meghan had Harry under such tight control that ultimately she would drive him, if things went wrong, to suicide. 
And so, I mean, there were really valid concerns for his welfare as well. Not only the welfare of the monarchy and the British nation, but the welfare of Harry himself. And so that's how I came to write the book. And, and she, of course, pulled the stunt of departing just three weeks before my book was due to be handed into the publishers. So I then had to scramble to rewrite the last two chapters of the book, which I did. But had, had she not done that, my book would have been far more punchy because I was going to say that she was embarking upon commercial and political activities that were completely forbidden and that she was doing it for the money. Because Meghan, in my opinion, and this is my opinion personally, going off her conduct, Meghan figured out that she does, it's not going to work for her to come and cut ribbons and, and have lunch with mayors. You know, it's, it's boring. It's not glamorous. It doesn't get her in the forefront of the world's media on a daily basis. So she didn't want to do 95% of what royals do on a daily basis. Most of what they do is unsung. I'm sure you know that. It's unsung, but it's very valuable because it's, it's connecting to people who matter in grassroots people, etc. And I realized that she didn't want to do that. And she'd also twigged if she wanted out of the marriage, she'd leave with nothing. While if she moved him to California and created this career, that she would leave with a lot of money. Well, at least she'd leave with 50% of what she had earned and what he had earned. So I thought there was a very cynical aspect to it. And I still think there is a very opportunistic aspect to her, to the move. And he's gone along with it because he is completely besotted, enchanted and bedazzled by her. It's, it's Narcissus and Echo. That's what it is. And I wrote a book on narcissism, by the way. I oh, wrote We'll have Sorry. to talk about narcissism. I have a, I have a little theory on narcissism. Um, so we'll, we'll come to that later. That everybody who accuses someone of being a narcissist is a narcissist themselves. Every time I've seen someone accuse someone of being a narcissist, I look at them and go, I think you define a narcissist. Anyone who's ever called me a narcissist, straight back at you, you're a narcissist. Anyway, let's, let's talk about that in a moment. Um, yeah. So I would love your thoughts on that. Now, I understand the deal with Netflix and or the deal with Spotify. We're talking 50 million pound deals here with Harry and Meghan for, you know, podcasts and Netflix. I don't shows. believe it for a second. I think it's all smoke and mirrors and hot air. I think they really? floated the balloon on a whole load of hot air. I have some very good friends who are Hollywood royalty. And I mean, real Hollywood royalty, not broken down fourth rate actresses in a minor cable TV show. I mean, proper, proper royalty Hollywood. And they say there's absolutely no way, none of it. They might have got three or five million, but it's all what they could get if everything went magnificently. And 
they are busy marching themselves and boosting themselves and, and inflating everything, their importance, their numbers. I don't believe it for a second. I don't believe it for one second. I think I think if I slash off at least a zero and you might be getting more to the truth. All right. I will take that. <laughs> right. also, also, you notice, even though they've had these fantastic deals that are 50 and 100 and 150 million dollars they've done one spotify i think it is or two and they they've done one or two things for i mean excuse me where are the results you know i'm afraid if if you're paid money to do something you deliver the goods you don't talk about it it's it's all it's all Horse manure dished up as foie gras. (laughs) Okay, right. Let's move now on, Lady C, to your books and your book writing. Um, So I believe you've written eight books or published eight books. Is that correct? No, I've written eight books on the royal family. Wow. So how many books have you written? Oh, I don't know, about 13 or 14. I'm not sure. I haven't counted. Wow. (laughs) Okay, so how do you generate new ideas for content? I don't really know. They just come to me. I really don't know. You know, I get struck by lightning. (laughs) Honestly, you know, I couldn't how I know. And it's, you know, also when I'm writing, sometimes I'm as surprised as anyone else by the things I come out with. Because I think if you have a basis of knowledge, when you're writing, you should know this. Things just come together. And if you can't surprise yourself, I should think you can't surprise the reader either. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think you make a really good point. Um, I definitely think the more you learn, the more comes through you, definitely. Um, so is there like a little writing routine you have? Let's say someone is listening and they're inspired by the fact that you've written 13 books and built a great brand, and they want to start writing their own books. As much as it's great to hear the ideas come through you, someone can't copy that. They're not just going to be able to sit there and go, oh, I'm waiting for my ideas to flow through me like they do with Lady C. Do you sit down to a certain amount of time a day? Do you write in a particular environment which is conducive to creativity? Give us a bit of flavour of that. Well, I I think my... Day-to-day writing has changed as I've got older because I find having having spent so many years in front of a typewriter hunched over or a word processor, I have to be careful now that I don't completely kill myself in terms of my back. So so I now write semi-prone like Madame Recamier on her chaise long. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the with the computer and the word processor or whatever you call it, or, you know, on my lap. But before that, I used to write at a desk. And I say I'm like a secretary. You get up, you go in, you do the job, you leave. And I have noticed over the years that when I have struggled with the writing or when it has come easily and I think, oh, well, that's flowing beautifully, And then when I struggle, three months later, I can't tell the qualitative difference. 
I don't know which was which, which is really interesting. And I think you just struggle sometimes, you know. And also there are times when I've had to jump over the boredom hurdle. I mean, you know, some of some of the stuff that one writes is sometimes interesting, but sometimes maybe academically interesting you want to make it, but it's, you know, some of it can be so perfunctory and so dull if you're not careful. That, I mean, I used to say when I was writing my first Diana book, I had to jump over the boredom hurdle on a daily basis because her life was a lot less interesting than I made it. And she was a lot less interesting a person than I presented her as being. And the irony is that once that book was published and the Morton book was published and Bedlam reigned supreme, she became a lot more interesting a person and grew into being a more interesting person than she had hitherto been. So it's, 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 I, I just write, you know, if I've got a deadline to meet, I meet it. I, I don't think I've ever been later than three days. And sometimes I've been dead on the nose. You know, it's you need to be professional. This nonsense about artists in their atelier waiting for inspiration. To hell with inspiration. Try just working. <laughs> Lady C, could you give us a little bit of a flavour of your average day? My listeners love to get into the routines of successful people. So what do you have routines? What do you have? What do you like to do every day to make sure that you're working, you know, like you say, and you're hitting deadlines? Well, I like getting up quite late. (laughs) Typical artist. (laughs) I'm not an early bird. And I get up, I have every morning the same thing I have, except on Sunday mornings when I usually have guests house guests and so I serve a proper full English breakfast but during the week I have two oranges squeezed fresh oranges squeezed one hard-boiled egg and a tisane whether it's a peppermint or chamomile or something and that's it then I do whatever I need to do because there's always something to do endless phone calls people asking for things, whatever. And then I'll do lunch if I I have a sandwich for lunch every day. Same thing, sandwich and an apple or some grapes or some bananas and sometimes two of the three together. Then I don't have tea normally, but every now and then I do have tea. If people have been ill-advised enough to bring cake, I hate to throw food away. So that's why I keep on expanding year after year. And then, but very occasionally will I have tea. And then I have dinner later, you know, sort of at about nine o'clock, 8.39. I have dinner uh, and go to bed at about one o'clock. And do you work late? Oh, if I have to, yes. I mean, I remember when I was writing my book, The Untold Life of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. The children, this was, I was in France with the children who were at school in France. And some of their friends said, what's your mother doing up? It's four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> they said, she's working, she's finishing a book, you know. And I, that book 
that book really, I had to, I had such problems with my back. I had to be taking mig-relief tablets, and then I would eat caviar on toast to sort of get the energy at two o'clock in the morning to finish. And then I'd be up at eight or nine to do, you know, you just have to do it. Uh, one year on Boxing Day, we were staying with friends. After Boxing Day lunch, I retired to my bedroom to continue working. I mean, you have, you know, you have to make sacrifices. And if something has to be done, it has to be done. I'm not interested in why you can't do something. Do it. Death is the only excuse. And I keep on saying it and I really mean it. And I hold myself to that as well. I don't think if you can't sacrifice that, that you will ever be really be able to maintain anything. Thank you. Lady C, do you think the world is too soft and politically correct? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. You know, but this is the sign of this is the sign of a decadent civilization. All civilizations have an arc. Say take, say, for instance, the ancient Roman civilization. Originally agrarian, which most all civilizations have originally been agrarian. And you have people who own land, you have landowners, and you have people who work the land. Then gradually more and more people become successful. And then after they become successful, you have privileges. Then there's abuse of privilege. And then there's usually the, the introduction of democracy was, was the one of the things, but at some point, each society tries to leaven the loaf somewhat and get rid of inequalities. At some point, all societies convert privileges into rights. And that is the moment at which the society starts to decline. With the ancient Roman Empire and ancient Roman civilization, it took uh, from a bit BC to 1453, when the Eastern Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. So it took 1,500 years, but, this is, but the civilization was in decline for 1,500 years. Our civilization is a civilization that is in decline. We have converted, which all civilizations do, we have converted privileges into rights. And everybody confuses privilege with rights. And they expect to be given by the government, by the state, by life generally, that which really is not the government's or the state's or life's to give you. You need to get off your bum bum and make something of your life. So that, I think, is what is going on now. And we have very greedy, entitled people who, who think, no, I'm not making any sacrifices. Everything must come to me. Well, that's not really the natural way. And that, and ultimately, we are natural beings and we cannot distort nature too much without suffering adverse consequences. Having said that, more people 
are better off with more rights, more privileges, a better standard of living, and more liberties than in the whole history of civilization right now, even with COVID and even with the restrictions of COVID. So, so we have also done something right as a civilization because we have given people liberty and prosperity that is unprecedented, but it comes at a price. Everybody, you know, an army is not run by field marshals and nobody has a foot soldier. The human being walks on his or her feet, not on their hands or head. And society is the same thing. And so I think, yes, we are, I think we're a very spoilt, indulged, entitled, and really quite unrealistic civilization at the moment. Having, but having said that, there's a lot of good as well. And I'd like us to retain the good and recalibrate to, to make things more realistic. Could you give us some examples of that? What do you perceive as those solutions to uh, an entitled society? Well, for instance, I will use one small example. The disposable fashion industry. The fashion industry in my lifetime, and I, I was a Deansley student at the Fashion Institute in New York. So I studied apparel design, has to be said, 1967 to 1970. <laughs> so when Methuselah was in short pants, well, see, in those days, you bought clothes that would hopefully last or you would adjust. We now, we have, have in my lifetime, built in obsolescence in all sorts of things that it's dangerous to have obsolescence in because we have been consuming the environment to satisfy a false goal of obsolescence. Yes, it breeds a degree of prosperity. It also breeds great damage to the environment. And the fashion industry, the disposable fashion industry, has destroyed much of the environment in the East. It's a huge, huge problem. They have polluted rivers. They have destroyed huge swathes of various countries in the East to satisfy our desire for a T-shirt for five pounds. And people, I... I'm horrified to see young people buying a T-shirt for five pounds and say, oh, well, I can't be bothered to wash it. I'll get another one. I'm sorry, wash it, keep it. I have clothes that are 50 years old. I mean, what I have on right now is 12 years old. It doesn't look 12 years old, does it? Because you need to take care of things and, and you mustn't, dis we, you know, Plastics are a huge problem, as we all know. Plastics and the pollution that comes from things like the fashion industry, which pollute, they, they pollute the rivers, and it is a disaster. We need to rethink some of our values and return in some ways to more old ways of doing things, conservation, preservation, and also something else that is very at the moment, and I don't hear anybody speaking about it, but I'm going to speak about it, 
is that until the advent of penicillin, people kept their distance from each other. You didn't hug everyone because I could have a cold. I could give you the cold. You could be dead two weeks later of a strep throat. That's until the advent of penicillin. People, and this was from the beginning of time until effectively near the, end, near the, the middle of the last century. People kept their distance. People were responsible. If you had a cold, you try to not give it to people. We live in a world where because of the advent of penicillin and other miracle drugs, no, it doesn't matter. I can give anybody anything, they're going to be cured. But COVID is proving that that's no longer so. And we as a civilization need to readopt the, the principle of personal responsibility. If I know I don't feel well, stay at home. That we need to be, we need to be, behave in a more socialized way, which means I should care about your welfare instead of I'm going to go out and have a good time. It doesn't matter. I'll take two aspirin and I'll be fine. And I think that's a very I think society is heading in that direction now because of COVID. And also the fact, of course, that antibiotics were already starting to be a problem because we have abused them so much. But, you know, it's in man's nature to abuse. That's why the pendulum always swings one way, then the other way, because man is inclined to abuse. Thank you. Um, Lady C, um, from my research, you've claimed that the Me Too movement prevented men from being men. What did you mean by that? Well, I didn't really say that. Of course, you know, one is always slightly misquoted and, and you know, it's uh, a complex thought is reduced to something that you didn't actually intend it to, 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 to the meaning that you didn't actually intend. But yes, I have two sons. Uh, and they're 28 years old. And I have seen the way women have changed. Sometimes it's for the better, by the way. When I was young, a girl never told a guy he, she loved him first. She, you know, she waited for him to say, I love you first. And she, she, you know, she never proposed to him. She'd wait for him to propose it. Women were more well, less dynamic, let's put it that way. Uh, that's changed, and I think in some ways that's a very good thing. But I see that women are so aggressive now. I mean, my sons have complained to me about the, when they were younger, that girls would come up to them and sort of, you know, and I mean, this is not a complaint of theirs alone, many young men as well. Good looking young man. I'm sure you have it happened to you. You know, where girls come up to you and sort of like, how about it? sort of thing. And you know, so so it rarely becomes a, a transactional thing where I have my body and you can have it. And it's so, and they have removed a lot of the romance and a lot of the sensibility and a lot of the feeling from intrapersonal relationships. 
And they have also, if, if a guy, for instance, uh, goes up to a girl now, uh, unless he gets an engraved invitation from Smagson, she can accuse him of all sorts of things. And they often do mischievously. I'm not saying that there are not situations where, you know, that untoward things happen. Untoward things happen to all of us. I mean, in my day, practically every girl I knew got date tricked at some point. So you learned, don't go to coffee, don't go to a guy's apartment for coffee at two o'clock in the morning. Coffee is a four-letter word and it begins with C, but it doesn't end in E, it ends in K. <laughs> and that's what he has on offer. You know, and so you learn, all of us learn to, to, you know, don't put ourselves in compromising positions. Nowadays, I mean, some of the laws, I think, you know, I, I read somewhere, I don't know how true it is, that some somebody was accused of rape because he was in the middle of Congress and she decided that she wanted it to end in the middle of Congress. And when he continued for a little bit longer, she accused him of rape. I'm sorry. I think that is a total misuse of what true rape is all about. And I think that true rape is a terrible thing. But they have, they have hampered to such an extent interchange between the sexes with, with false accusations that, you know, and, and then criminal compensation. So, so a lot of people are incentivized to lie to get a criminal conviction. Look at that, look at that lady the other day, the judge's wife, who was accused of child molestation because the male in question, she says, wanted money from her. She, well, she got off. But, but the point was made in court that he was hoping that she would be done and then he would be able to sue her for a whole load of money that she was not prepared to give him otherwise. I'm not saying that there are not injustices on either side. There always are. The point I'm trying to make is that decency needs to prevail and that young people should not take advantage of each other, but also you shouldn't be mean and nasty when you don't have to be. Lady C, when, um, when you Google your name, certainly on my computer, it might be different in different regions. The first thing that comes up, which is the question that most people ask about Lady C is, what is Lady C's gender? Are you able to talk about that and, you know, a bit of your story around dealing with that? Well, it's very tiresome. <laughs> maybe not for others who've maybe. Yeah, I know, but, but maybe not for others. But, you know, uh, I will say I'm not a piece of meat on a, in a butcher's shop for the delectation or the, maybe the purchase of one or two. So I will be very brief about the whole thing. Uh, my gender is female. And everybody by now knows that I was brought up in the wrong gender. 
because when I was born, that's what happened to girls who were born with certain deformities. It happened even long after I was born, although there is a very famous movie actress who had a relate a similar, not identical, but a, a, but a, a condition as well. And she was brought up in the correct gender. And I mean, it's well known in a certain circle that, you know, but it's, it's not something for general consumption. And I would never mention her name. But it's, it was quite a, it's a far more common occurrence than people might realize. But I've never thought, oh, poor me, how unlucky I was. I thought, I'm lucky that I was born just before medical science could sort out problems like this so that you could actually have a full life. You know, you have a choice in life. How are you going to look at a situation? And I choose to look at it from that point of view. I've never known anybody who was a true victim who played the victim card. The victim card is invariably played by people who are not victims who want to have an advantage. Well, thank you for talking about that. Um, Okay, so where should we go next? I'll tell you what we'll do. I'm going to save those two questions till last. Well, can 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 I say, because you can cut it up. I'm slightly concerned about the answer I gave about the the rape thing. Well, look, you have absolute um, autonomy on edit. So if there's anything, we can send you the content. If there's anything you think, nah, just take that out, more than happy. Thank you. Thank you. Because I don't want, you know, the problem with dealing with very nuanced subjects is that people will then choose you know, where you said, I am not an axe murderess, even though they said I am an axe murderess. Then they cut out the I am not an axe murderess. So you get, I am an axe murderess. Yes, she admitted it, you know. So I'm just, but anyway, okay, so let's go on. Yeah, sure. So with the um, YouTube recording of this and the podcast of this, 95% 95% of the time we don't edit anything it's just the whole show because oh. yeah because our guests they come on this show because we don't edit them out or nick little sound bites like the media might okay. so um you know but anyway we can send you that and you can go through it if there's any bits to take out okay well then now that i know that let's just continue <laughs> for Excellent. a lack okay. of it <laughs> Right. And we probably won't edit that bit out because people will like that bit. So, okay. okay so we said we'd have a chat about narcissism. You've written a book on that. But I'm going to save that to the end for a bit of fun because I want to change up the pace a bit. So if it's okay with you, Lady C, we're going to do a quick fire round where I'm going to ask you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, about 12 questions. But if you could answer in 15 seconds or less oh. to get, it's just a bit of fun. Normally, is we we enjoy it. Okay. So, quick fire question number one, Lady C. What do you think is your greatest strength? Perseverance. What do you think is your greatest weakness? Well, I'm not going to say that. I'm not that dumb. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose it used to be gullibility. 
What is your greatest fear? I don't have a greatest fear. I think in life you learn that if you're afraid of something, just conquer your fears. It's as easy to be courageous as it is to be cowardly, because ultimately you have foreseen and unforeseen consequences, whether you are brave or cowardly. So you may as well be courageous. Sorry to, uh, sorry to take longer than 15 seconds. I actually think that was a brilliant answer. So my pleasure. Um, no worries about that. It's, this is your round. If you want to take 17 seconds, then you're allowed. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's the best career decision you've ever made? Writing my Diana book was the best career decision I ever made. The next best career decision I ever made was going into the jungle, ironically enough. What's the worst career decision you've ever made? Entrusting a vast sum of money to somebody who presented himself as my greatest male friend and ripped me off royally. What's the best advice you ever remember receiving? I'm not sure I can think of something so quickly. What's the worst advice you ever remember receiving? Again, I can't think. Sorry. It's... I'm not very good on snap things. Now, this is great. Maybe we'll come back to those. It's all good. This one doesn't have to take 15 seconds. What one thing do you think is wrong with the world that you'd love to see changed? I would like to see people have more respect for each other's opinions. And that means that I have the right to offend you with my opinion and you have the right to offend me with yours. If there was one person on the planet alive today, you'd love to see interviewed on a show like this, who would it be and why? Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell, who is, he is America's greatest living philosopher and he is a fascinating thinker. Oh, he is brilliant and he's sound and solid and he is grounded in true philosophy. He's very against a lot of what is happening nowadays because he is a true libertarian. He understands liberty is very important, but it also comes with responsibility. And that one should always be a measured and prejudice can be a very destructive thing. And it doesn't matter whether you're prejudiced against what is fashionable or unfashionable. Prejudice is usually the sign of an uninformed mind and a really niggardly heart. This show has the word disruptive in it. Disruptive entrepreneur, disruptive insert, whatever word you want. What does the word disruptive mean to you? Oh, it usually means badly behaved house guests <laughs> who, who don't come to dinner on time or who, uh, you know, take cheese boards into the bedroom and then when you're looking for them, you can't find them. That to me is <laughs> what disruptive means. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it agitates me greatly. <laughs> I like things to run smoothly. And I like people to do what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it. Oh, that's to me 
disruptive. What you're doing is not disruptive. What you are doing is thinking creatively and resourcefully. And that's, to me, not disruptive. That is life-enhancing. You know, a friend of mine died a few days ago. Oh, I hadn't seen him for years, but he and his wife, ex-wife now, oh, she was a, a, she's a, still a lovely, lovely person. And I only spoke to her the other day. Edward de Bono. Have you heard of Edward de Bono? Yeah, Who, read up on him. Yeah, read his books, creative. No. Yeah. Lateral thinking, etc. Yeah. Brilliant man. And I mean, you know, you had some people like, uh, there's a journalist called Craig Brown who proofed him. I mean, you're just pathetic, you know. I mean, and saying, oh, well, he didn't say anything that wasn't, that he, you know, what he said didn't discover anything new. Actually, he did. He did. He, he, it's, it, the fact is that lateral thinking has always existed and didn't have a name doesn't mean that he didn't discover it in much the same way that atoms have always existed. But the ancient Greeks discovered atoms. And then rather more recently, we discovered atoms uh, 2,000 years later. And of course, so to say, well, you know, to discount it, because he gave a label to something that nobody else had ever given a name. And he's absolutely right. I mean, okay, he did come up with examples occasionally that were a stretch, but that happens with everybody because you're trying to convey the thought and not all your examples are supreme or superb, but he, I think, was one of the great thinkers of the age. And his ex-wife, by the way, is divine. She's absolutely lovely. <laughs> and he was okay too. I I found him, you know, just okay, but she was fabulous. <laughs> right, a couple of things here. And I always like people to be able to put their own side across. This is always important to me, like you said about um, we have the right to each other, be offended or to offend. Um, so... Uh, I've got a quote here from your ex-husband, Lord Colin, which says, Lady C is a monster, a crushing snob, and a complete fake. What's your response to that, Lady C? Well, may I point out that I have sued my ex-husband and various newspapers over the decades for the lies he has been paid to say about me. And it's actually completely forbidden for him to have said that. And I would be very interested to know when he said it uh, and where he said it, because my ex-husband is a pathological liar, was a wife beater. Uh, I left him uh, because I got fed up of being, for instance, the right side of my face was reconstructed in, say, in what's the hospital at St. George's Hyde Park Corner by Mr. Warner in May 1974. I'd only been married to him for six weeks. I should have left then and there. I didn't. But I did leave several months later. My husband, I think, is a pathetic creature because I actually think that he suffers from alcohol fetal spectrum. 
because his mother was an alcoholic and she was drinking when she was pregnant with him. And he, he was very captivating initially. And he married me for my father's money and used to admit it. He had a great advantage because his, I met him staying with my sister-in-law, his sister Jeannie. She was a friend of mine. She had a house in Jamaica where I am from. He knew all about my family. He knew that my family had money. And as he used to point out, members of his family always married for money. But I was not prepared to have his hand deep in my father's pocket because I had a very uh, touchy relationship with my father. Because to an extent, I blamed my father for the perpetuation of my problem for years beyond when it should have been solved. So I was hardly going to be begging daddy for money to have this drug addicted alcoholic uh, lurching around day and night. So I, I told him, I said, well, you're really a fool if you marry somebody for her father's money. You should have checked to see that I had money of my own. He said, oh, well, Margaret, my stepmother-in-law, his stepmother, Margaret, Duchess of Argyll, he said, Margaret had no money of her own and, and her father used to give pa money. I said, well, more fool him. It's not going to happen. And he's, he is, though, a very, very sick person. And I have been able to prove in various court cases for a period of decades that he has absolutely no respect for the truth. And every word out of his mouth where I am concerned has been a lie. Because I'll tell you what else. My ex-husband and his brother are the people who sold the story about my upbringing to the newspapers. I have the contract. Now, how does that square up with the fact that he didn't know about my upbringing until he read it in the newspapers? I had the contract that he signed with the Sunday people. Distasteful, utterly distasteful. He did it because the Priory was suing him for several thousand pounds in drying out and drug addicted treatment from long before I'd ever met him. And his brother was being sued by Manufacturers Hanover Trust for non-payment of a mortgage loan that his mother had taken out to get him 79 Park Walk. And they thought, and I'd said, I wanted to leave him, but I was, I wanted to leave nicely because by and large, I'm a nice person. And if I can do things nicely, I'll do them nicely. But he taught me, if you can't do things nicely, mow the buggers down. And I was leaving him nicely. And he and his brother cooked up the idea, well, she's going to go. So we better, we better maximize this and tricked me, really, or they thought they were tricking me completely, but they did trick me in, into, so that he was, he was with my parents. I had already told him I wanted a divorce, but because my father had bought tickets for us to go to Jamaica for the Christmas, I 
went to Jamaica with him. You know, sort of, we're going to be divorced, but that's fine. We can be friends. And they made the move while I was in Jamaica and he was staying at my parents' house. How is it that he didn't know all of this? He's the one who sold the story with his brother to penniless bums. And what I find interesting is that the is that is that you have read something out to me that I actually didn't know about. Because if I had known about it, I would have actually sued on it. And I might still sue on it because I think the clock starts to tick when you have discovered something. And I've just discovered it on your show. And I might well sue him and the newspaper that printed it. Because I've sued him. You see, my mistake as well was in the 70s when I left him. And I could have sued him. I just sued the newspapers. I thought it was inelegant to sue an ex-husband. It was only in the 1990s, 20 years later, when all of this was still ongoing and he was still, and the newspapers were still happy to print his lies, even though they knew they were lies, and even though they had paid out significant sums previously, but they made more money telling the lie than speaking the truth. And that's when I hit them and him. And I sued him as well as them. And they all walked away having been, it cost them hundreds of thousands of pounds apiece. And I said, when my lawyer says, I said, no, we're going to hit the bastards in the pocket. That's the only thing they will understand. But this time I might actually, because the last time I could have continued suing Colin Campbell after the newspaper settled, but I thought, oh, well, I can't be bothered. But then let's see what happens, because I'm going to have a look at this. And I might sue them and him. And if they settle, I can still continue to sue him. And let's finish on narcissism, because we raised that earlier. And you said you've written um, a book on narcissism. And I said something that I've experienced with people who accuse others of narcissism. Of course, only my experience. Um, and I understand that your mother had um, a narcissistic uh, personality disorder from, from our research. Um, so let's talk about narcissism. How do you deal with it if you've got people in the family with it or people you know with it? What is it? Do some people use it as a weapon, as an accusation? Let's talk. I, I agree with you. It's a word that nowadays is banded around really very irresponsibly. And I, I agree with you that often people who accuse others of something actually suffer from it themselves. Oh, I think it's called displacement or projection or some such thing, if you could refresh my memory. <laughs> but anyway, I, I wrote the book. When, uh, when I wrote the book, narcissism was not the hot topic it is now. In fact, there was very literature on narcissism. It's now become in the last 10 years, as indeed narcissism has become rife because of the entitled society that we live in, uh, where, because one of the things that creates a narcissist is somebody who's spoiled and where you feel entitled. Uh, 
But Erica Freeman, who is one of the most eminent psychoanalysts on earth, she was a friend of my sister-in-law, Jeannie's, and she was a friend of another friend of mine who will remain nameless because she has a very eminent name, but she's very private, so I'm not going to mention her name. And Erica was having tea with us. We were in New York together. And Erica said that I should write a book on money because at the time there was very little literature on the subject and none really from somebody who had survived narcissistic personality disorder. And as Erica put it, she said, you're very spiritually and emotionally evolved and you will be able to make a contribution to the subject. I was horrified. I said, oh, Erica, are you absolutely nuts? It's my mother. I couldn't write. She said, think about it, because you really could do a lot of people some good. Write it. And she kept on at me. And so I thought, well, once I thought about it, I thought, well, I need to ask my sisters, because it's their mother as well. My brother by then was dead. So I didn't need to ask him. My father was dead. My mother was dead. I couldn't have done it if mummy was alive. It would have been too disrespectful. But they're all dead. So it doesn't really, it's, it's not going to harm them. So I asked my sisters if they would mind. And they said, no, fine, go ahead. After it was written, one of them <laughs> said, but you told the truth. <laughs> I said, but what did you expect? Of course it's going to tell the truth. She said, but you, you told the truth. Like, she didn't really expect it to tell the whole truth, but I, it didn't make sense to write it if you didn't tell the truth. And I really did it because, you, you know, Erica thought I'd be able to help people, and I did, because I've got so many letters from people over the years about how, what a revelation it was. And even when I occasionally speak about narcissism on my YouTube channel, because I have a little YouTube channel called, on, uh, called I think it's called Lady Colin Campbell, <laughs> or Chatting with Lady C, or any, whatever it's called. And from time to time, narcissism comes up as well. And, you know, people invariably comment on how helpful it is to them, because a lot of people who have experienced narcissism, because there's a great sense of befuddlement when you are caught up with a narcissist, because they have you coming and going. And, you know, it's... It's, but, but I will make the point that narcissistic personality disorder is not quite the same thing as people bandy around narcissism. A degree of narcissism is healthy. You know, it's called good ego structure. You need to have enough self-respect. You need to have enough confidence. You need to believe that what you are doing is of interest or desirable or whatever. There is a difference between healthy ego structure where people like themselves for valid reasons and 
people who are massively in love with themselves, who have completely distorted the concept and are very destructive and destructive of themselves and everybody else. Because a narcissist goes through life like a shark, just and wear all minnows and sea lions and gorgeous guys and girls on the beach. And they just, they are feeding mechanisms. They go through life devouring. And they are really very cold individuals. But they're often rather more intelligent than the average person. And they learn from an early age how to put on masks that work for them. They develop narcissistic techniques and they develop the ability to dupe you. And they they love duping people. They love it. And they are extremely resourceful. I mean, they have imaginations in terms of destructiveness that none of us who would be a normal person could ever think of it's oh, and sometimes it's only after you've been put through yet another ringer that you think, well, what did? Why did they do what they did? It's they, but that's not the same as everyday, you know, oh, somebody who fancies himself or herself a little bit. And you say, oh, you know, they really, they used to say, oh, you fancy yourself something rotten, or as that song by Carly Simon is, you know. Do you remember the song about Warren Beatty? <laughs> well, but that's not really it. It's, uh, it's not people who fancy themselves. It's people who really have taken self-love to a sick degree. And they are extremely dangerous and damaging people. So let's finish on this, Lady C. And by the way, I've just found your YouTube channel. So we'll give that a good shout out. You've got some really great views here on a lot of your content. And it's Lady Colin Campbell. Lady Colin Campbell. So anyone listening, please make sure you do subscribe to Lady C's channel. I think you're so articulate and interesting to listen to across a broad range of topics. So I want to thank you so much in advance. Going to end on this. And this wasn't planned in the interview. But give us a few tactics Um, concise ones maybe that people who've had experiences with narcissists can use to survive narcissists in, you know, their relationships or whatever, because you've come out the other side, you know, a strong individual having experienced it with your mother. Well, if you can possibly avoid them, avoid them. Nothing is ever going to end well. You are swimming in a sea with a shark, and when it's hungry, it's going to bite off your leg. So avoidance is often a very invaluable tool. If you cannot avoid or you choose not to avoid, you need to draw lines very firmly. And as soon as the nonsense starts, you need to nip it in the bud. I I used to, because I did not speak to my mother for 20 years. And the only reason I started speaking to her again 
was once I got my children, I wanted them to have grandparents. And since we were a one-parent family, it needed to be my parents. And my father, who had Parkinson's and was very ill, was very excited to meet my children. And I was going to take them to Jamaica to show him. And he died before we reached there. But anyway, so I had to go for the funeral and blah, blah, blah. And I started, I, that was the opportunity for my mother to try to reestablish contact. But I had already decided I was going to reestablish contact with her for the children. And I did the right thing from their point of view. And I understood she was a dangerous woman and I needed to keep that shark in her pen. And I used to, one of my sisters would say, oh, I just don't tell me, tell her. I used to say, just say to her, mommy, sorry, good and happy relationships or no relationships at all and walk off. I said, and just leave her and the following morning, she will be perfectly okay because she was also an alcoholic. So it wasn't only the narcissism, it was the alcoholism as well. So I used to say, you know, she will, she will get back into her box, but you need to kick her into the box. Just tell her and don't be, don't be nasty. Don't lose your temper. You know, just say good and happy. I figured out one or two trigger things to say. Good and happy relationships or no relationships at all was really the best one that I came up with. And occasionally I would say oh, something like, oh, be that as it may, but I'm now going to go for a walk. And I'd walk off and leave her. I'd just leave her in the lurch. And I was, because she, of course, would want you to get in there with a whole tussle and, and, uh, and oh, sure, she was rude to me or da la la da da da. I thought I'm going to deprive the cow of all of her mooings. And I made sure I did, you know. But I, I just thought I'm not engaging. And, but and very occasionally, when she was dying, and each of us had to go and spend a week with her in Cayman, because she died in Cayman, and we needed to be there because, you know, she, otherwise she was just with the maids and the gardeners, etc. And and uh, so we each of us would go. And then sometimes she'd be so maddening, you know, that I just, I'd think, Christ, I've been here for three days and she's not yet asked one question about me all my life. You know, it's all about herself. I think, and, and once or twice, I'd, oh, I'd just say, you know, mommy, this is, I'm going to take a break. <laughs> just walk off you know because I, I just thought but there was no point in saying to her you know you are the most maddening creature because she was the most maddening creature but at 77 she wasn't going to learn and she hadn't learned at seven she didn't learn at three so why was she going to learn at 77 and I, then I sort of think well I'm upset but then I'm human I'm entitled to be upset you know and once or twice, I actually even thought to myself, at least I'm going to get a whole load of money at the end of this. <laughs> but then the irony is <laughs> because my sisters are American citizens, 
the bank in Cayman would not allow them to be signatories on mummy's accounts. Only I, who was a British citizen, could become a signatory because in Cayman, they won't allow any American to be a signatory on any account because then that gives the Uncle Sam the right to ferry it around in everybody. So to prevent Uncle Sam's intrusiveness, they just don't allow Americans, which meant that towards the end of her life, I had absolute control of everything. So, I mean, I'd think, well, at least I'm going to, and then I think, well, of course, I could walk off with the money tomorrow, but of course I wasn't going to. But, you know, you had to console yourself with some, some reward, even if, even if you knew that really you weren't there for the money, you were you were there because it was the right thing to do as well. And, you know, I, I can't, but I can't say I had any sympathy for her whatsoever. I mean, people like that, if you have sympathy for them, they gobble you up. I used to say, you know, mommy has so much self-pity, I don't need to pity her. <laughs> it's true because they, they will take any emotion you have and they will devour you. But I'm lucky, looking back on it, because it took me maybe 40 years to figure out that certainly 30-something, because I didn't figure it out till mummy was dead, that mummy died to me in 1972 when she tried to burn me on my face. She tried to burn me on my face because... Lucy Knickerbocker had said I was one of the most beautiful girls in the world. And Mummy, who was in competition with everybody, just was enraged that nobody had ever said she was one of the most beautiful girls in the world. People used to say she was beautiful. And of course, I also knew that Lucy Knickerbocker was bigging up Jamaica and bigging up the tourist industry, you know, and sort of bigging me up. And most likely thought, oh, well, Poor darling, you know, she deserves a little leg up because of her very unfortunate upbringing. So it, it was a nice label to have, but it sent mummy mad. And two weeks later, she tried to burn me on my face with a lighted cigarette. And that's the moment at which she died to me. And it took me until she was dead to figure out that she had actually destroyed our relationship completely, even though the corpse kept on uh, spluttering. And we kept on interacting at times when I would speak to her. And they were very few and far between. But people like that are very dangerous. And if, if you can't, if you, if you can avoid them, avoid them. If you can't or you have a good reason for not avoiding them, as I did when I reintroduced her into my life because of the children, yes, manage them with firmness and don't get sucked into their game. They're using you. They are complete exploiters. They use everybody and everything. They have no feeling for everyone. I remember when my, my, my grandmother died and she was a wonderful woman. And we were sitting on the front veranda after her funeral and everybody was in tears and grief stricken. Mummy hasn't shed a tear yet. <laughs> Her own mother hasn't shed a tear yet. No interest. The only thing she was interested in was where was the land and how much was it worth? That was what she was interested in. 
Mutant, they are opportunists. They use everybody. And you, if you think they love you, it's only because they are using you. And as sad but true. Wow. Lady C, I want to say thank you very much for giving your time. Uh, we follow you, Lady Colin Campbell, on YouTube. We've given that a good couple of shout outs. What one book would you say we should start on that you've written if you were to choose one for us to go and get right now? Well, I suppose the most topical would be Megan and Harry the Red story because I foreshadow everything that's happening. Because once you get to the heart of the matter, everything follows as a natural consequence, even things that come in the future. I'm not a fortune teller, but I'm very good at getting my, my I'm nailing down my characters. Then if people are interested in Diana, the real Diana, the British version, is much better than the American version. And a really good book for those who really like fascinating characters who are very effective is The Untold Life of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. She was some operator, let me tell you. She was something else. She was really very bright, very capable, very ambitious, and nothing like her public image. She could be very, you know, she was very sugary and sweet to meet. But my goodness, she knew how to operate. She And hers is a really fascinating life because that is an operator who succeeds. Diana and Megan are both operators who, well, Diana wasn't really an operator, but in her operations, she ultimately failed. Because look at what happened to her with the Martin Bashir thing, or many other things. But the fact of the matter is Diana begged for it and she got it because Diana used to do to people what Martin Bashir did to her. So there's a, a sense of justice there somewhere. Although I'm not recommending that Martin Bashir should be let off the hook because I think he should be firmly pinned on it. And Megan, I think, is destroying their brand. I think that everything she does because she's so transparent, you know. But to those who are interested in operators, I think that's an interesting story. And it's, it's an ever-evolving story. But I think several people have said, I really got her measure. And I did. I did because I know her type. I've lived through it. <laughs> There's nothing like battle scars, my dear, to make you know the sound of cannon and machine gun fire. <laughs> Lady C, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. God bless. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Rob again, and I need to own up to something. Entrepreneurs don't celebrate enough. I bet you don't. I know I don't. And we went through the five-year anniversary of The Disruptive Entrepreneur, which is a massive achievement, and the 600th episode, which again, how many podcasts have done 600 episodes? And we didn't even celebrate. So I want to celebrate the 600th episode and the five-year anniversary with you. We have something new and special that I think you're going to love. Now, many of you who listen 
you're on my Facebook supporter program. You get 10 pieces of content with me as a bonus over and above what the general public get. We have supporter only meetups, socials, dinners. I do ask me anythings every sort of two weeks or so live. We do make cash and social media challenges. You get discounts, you get to come to events and you get premium ticket upgrades and so much more. But what I've done to celebrate the five year anniversary, the 600th episode, is actually created a decentralized platform called Rob.team. Many of you don't use Facebook. We're in a a more modern decentralized age now. So if you go right now to rob.team, www.rob.team, you can join my supporter and rob.team program. You can choose whether you enroll on Facebook or the non-native decentralized platform that I've built specially for you. And for just five pounds or five dollars a month, cancel any time you get 10 premium pieces of content from me you don't get anywhere else, deep dive content. You get supporter and team only meetups, socials and dinners throughout the year. Uh, Two weekly Ask Me Anything Live that I don't do in any public situation anymore. We do seven day challenges about five times a year, make cash challenges, social media challenges. You get premium ticket upgrades, special discounts. I have um, three Facebook account managers. We often have Zoom meetings with them and then we update you sort of from the horse's mouth live um, what they shared with us. Um, Whenever we do events and webinars, we never do replays or recordings. But as a supporter and team member, you get those free. You get an extra 10% discount off any of my trainings. And get this, if you're one of the first 60, I can't do 600, you'll see why. Then I'm actually going to do a 15 minute one to one personal call with you. And if you're one of the first 256, I've just set up a brand new Rob.team uh, WhatsApp group where you'll get my mobile number and you know we can share strategies and tactics together. So go right now to www.rob.team. That's www.rob.team. First 50, get a 15-minute one-to-one call with me. Um, I'm going to do that after your first month subscription, and I, you know it's going to take me a bit of time to do that, but I'll do it. I'll. I'm a man of my word. And the first 256 you get into the Rob.team supporters only WhatsApp group. There's loads of bonuses in there. This program has been running for two years. My six stage, seven figure launch formula, which was a paid for course, it's in there. How to write a best selling book course is in there. PAVA and social media manager and brand manager documents and job descriptions are in there. Marketing KPIs documents are in there. How to dramatically increase your fees. The book I'm writing, the up to date version is in there. There's so much content, it's only £5 or $5 a month. Uh, And I'm adding this new platform, Rob.team, to celebrate the 5th year anniversary and the 600 episodes. And first 60, 15 minute one-to-one call with me, first 256, get into the um, exclusive WhatsApp group. So be quick, go now, because we have millions of subscribers and downloads and views a week now for the Disruptive Entrepreneur Show across all platforms. So see you there at www.rob.team. Go now.